I was standing by myself and this tall man comes up to me and he was real serious. He had his coat over his arm and had a suit on. And he said to me, you made me laugh. It's hard to make me laugh. And you made me laugh. Mm. And that changed everything for me. Hello and welcome once again to No Name NYC Podcast. I'm Eric Vetter. I am your host for this ride, coming to you live from Isham Park in Inwood, uptown Manhattan. The voice you heard up front is one of my favorite actors and favorite people on the planet, Marilyn Torres, who uh, has a very impressive body of work. She's done a number of solo shows, actress in plays and TV. You may have seen her roles in the movies Made in Manhattan and Lady in the Water. Definitely, if you've never caught her solo stuff, try and catch her solo shows. She's a very electric performer. She's also very important to the history of No Name. Uh, At a point when we were a sketch comedy troupe, uh, we started playing with the format that has been our format for over 20 years now, the comedy variety format. And she was one of the bold performers who uh, took a chance to come and play with us and kind of help shape what we are today. So we're going to get to that conversation with Marilyn in a minute. But in the meantime, we have a a mini conversation with a a good friend of No Names. He's a wonderful author. He's written a couple of books, and his latest is called Comedy Goes to Court and examines uh, times when comics and comedians and comedy have been put on trial. The author is Carl Onebu. We're actually going to be doing a show in collaboration with him to promote the book, at Uptown's Recirculation Bookshop, 876 Riverside Drive, the corner of 160th Street. And that will be happening on Saturday, July 22nd at 3 o'clock p.m. Um, we're going to have some comics and we're going to have the band there. And you'll get to meet Carl and you can sign your book if you have a book or a purchase book. And it should just be a, a great day. So we talked to Carl a little bit about his book. And here it is, Carl Unabo. This is your second book about comedy. Why comedy? I have always covered comedy. Before I even did the first book, I was an editor of a website called Comedy Beat. And we covered comedy, wrote a lot of articles, blogs, you know, spoke to comedians. And even more importantly, we, um, I co-hosted a quarterly show at a bookstore in the Upper West Side, a place mm-hmm, called mm-hmm. Book Culture. It was a quarterly series. We called it uh, Comedy Dialogue, where we invited uh, comedians to do shticks, followed by a sit-down and an interview about all the big issues in the comedy industry. And my co-host was a guy named Travis. Travis Irvine, Irvine right? right. Another comedian and a journalist. We put on a very good show. How do you get to writing books on comedy? Is it an extension of the website? By accident. I mean, I didn't intend to even write a book. Not with respect to the first book, Comedy Under Attack. That was more like a commentary on the current state of comedy, political correctness, joke stealing, the whole shenanigans with corporate America mm-hmm. in the comedy space. I also got into issues about unionization, some attempts to form a union in the comedy industry you know, way back a couple decades ago. Let's talk about the new book. What do you get into here? This book actually began more as a blog. I mean, I had been doing this blog now for like 10 years before I even like decided to do a book. And the idea to do a book, again, was suggested to me by somebody who attended uh, one of my events in which I was doing a book reading. So and you know, that gave me the initial idea that maybe there's a book in here somewhere. And then when these suggestions came up again by folks who attended some of our events, 
then the idea has begun to gel in my head that perhaps there might be a way to transition this thing from just mere blog into like an actual book. So where, where can people track down all of your work as well as the books? www.okaslaw.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I encourage so anyone who loves comedy and who gets into the nuts and bolts of everything, please support Carl, pick up his books. You'll have a good time and uh, follow his blog and uh, keep an eye out for those events, hopefully coming to Word Up and other fine bookshops sooner than later. Carl, thank you for spending some time with us, man. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope uh, we can uh, talk about this book and the other events in the comedy space in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Oh, man. So again, Carl Unebu, that's U-N-E-G-B-U. Carl Unebu, author of Comedy Goes to Court. We'll be doing that no-name collaboration with him to promote the book on Saturday, July 22nd at Recirculation Bookshop, 876 Riverside Drive, corner of 160th Street. That will be free. So come on, hang out with us. Late July, so, you know, air conditioning, air conditioning. Come hang with us. All right, so we're going to get to our conversation with Marilyn Torres in just a second. But first, a word from our sponsor. You know what that means. Get away to Green Bay. Get away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right. The historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin, where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast. This is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think, I'd rather not have the breakfast? Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious... Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They are totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. I started doing stand-up when I was like 16. And I used to go to the village and there were all these old comedy clubs. Charlie Barnett used to p- perform. Oh, yeah. Do you remember what? Charlie Barnett? Did, did you know Charlie Barnett? I didn't know him personally, but I used to see him in, in Washington Square Ooh, Park. That was a time when you could go anywhere. Like There were so many different spots where you could go and try something out. And there was something electric about that because it was just raw material and you could you could just work stuff out and you could go anywhere like any little spot 
And then I joined a comedy troupe. Well, who ran that, that thing? Angelo Lozada. Oh, man. And so he was one of those people also that would create a space. He did. He created a space for comedians and poets and singers. And he had the troupe. But then part of what he did was, you know, between each sketch, somebody was going to come in and try out their stuff. And that was the thing that he did for me. He would say to me, Marilyn, what you got? What you got? So at that point, I wasn't really doing stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd stopped. And then he said, but you know, you want to do some stand up? And I was like, ah, no, what do you want to do? <laughs> and then I started doing monologues. And he would tap me. Oh, like, so that's where that started? Yeah, he would. Well, I started doing monologues in the ninth grade. I discovered I could write and that I had like a funny bone. Let's take a moment to step back. Now, you're a Harlem native. Mm-hmm. You always had that thing to perform. You strike me as that sort of a person. I picture you as being that little kid that was always putting something out there. Yeah. I didn't know that that's what I was doing. It was just more like, we're going to do an assembly, or we're going to do poetry, or we're going to do dance, or we're going to do... And I was always like... We did Annie. I remember they cast me as Annie, and then they bumped oh, me. Oh, man. man. Whatever the lead is, that's what Marilyn's doing. No, not particularly. It was just like, I think I just was willing and wanting. And then I think it really hit me when I was in the ninth grade, and there was this woman named Miss Dorian. So I grew up on the west side of Harlem, which is very important to distinguish from the east side. Miss Dorian, she was this white woman with big gold, gold hair, I remember she had this big butt and she smelled really good. Like she would walk through the hallway and she would leave like this really beautiful scent. And she always looked like she was about something. And one day she announced over the loudspeaker, she was creating an after school drama program. And I remember hearing it on the loudspeaker and going, like, I have to join that. I ran home and I was like, mommy, Miss Dorian's doing drama. And my mother was like, where do I sign? Like, Because my mom was the right kind of mom for an artist. And that was it. And I I joined. And it was me and my two best friends and some other kids. And she created the space. I'm sure she came across obstacles because, you know, she was a white woman in Harlem, in this school. But she was like, we're going to do theater. She taught us everything from A to Z about the theater. From stage left to stage right how to stand on stage and learn your lines. She got us into this festival at Joe Papp's Theater, and she had us pick monologues from Elizabeth Swato's Runaways. She was also intimidating. Like She just had this like no-nonsense, lovely and loving, but also what I didn't know when I look back, you know, she was preparing kids of color to be in the arts, So that was really my foundation. And you had to be impeccable. Learn your lines, know where you're going on stage, know what the character is, know what play it's from. And one day she said, I'm going to throw in monologues. So if you want to write something, go home and bring it in and I'll tell you what I think. And I went home and I was like, I want to write something. I don't know where that came from, but I was like, I want to write something. And I created this piece around this student sitting in a classroom. She was picking her nose. I don't know why, but she was (laughs) picking her nose. The kid gets nervous and 
like pop, the booger flies out the nose and hits the teacher on the forehead. And I remember writing it and going, man, this is so inappropriate. Like, and it just came out. And the next day I was so nervous. And I was like, Miss Dorian, I have, you know, I have a monologue. And she was like, let me see. And she was quiet, quiet, quiet. And then she said, okay, this is going to be the lineup for the show. And my monologue made it in the lineup. We go to Joe Papp's. Everybody performs. We perform like I had like this dramatic monologue and it was deep, you know, I was like, ah, right? And then comes my my moment to do my monologue. And it was the first time I'd experienced laughter. And I was like, oh, and the monologue was funny and laugh, 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 laugh. It changed everything for me because I was like, oh, snap, I can make people laugh. And afterwards, I was standing by myself amongst like all these people. And this tall man comes up to me and he was real serious. He had his coat over his arm and he Mm -hmm. was like, had a suit on. And he said to me, are you the young lady that did that monologue about the flying snot? And I said, oh my God, I'm in trouble. He's going to, like I bucked up and I was like, yes. And he said, you made me laugh. It's hard to make me laugh. And you made me laugh. And that changed everything for me. Because I was like, oh, you know, I could be serious. But I also had this side of me that was like, just silly. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for me. But she was one of those people that created space. There was obstacles. It took a minute, you know, I think for the school to kind of believe in it. You know, she stuck with it. And then Mm -hmm. it became something. So... That's why I say what you've done, what you did was not easy. It's one of the most generous things you could do for another artist. And I'm saying that without crying. I appreciate that so much. And when I see it in people, I go, that's a very generous soul. I don't take that lightly. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. After all these years, I've been properly trained. I'm I'm learning to. You, you say thank you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say thank you, but you know what I mean. Like yes. I, for, for much of in. my life, and you've known me long yes. enough. You've probably seen me do that thing. Well, thanks. Well, you know, yes, I just yes, try yes. and and then like run off a, a blue streak or whatever. Thank you. Good. So at that point, the seed is planted. Yes, because she then um, was like, "There's performing arts high school." And we were like, what? And she was like, yeah, you could take this further if you want to keep doing this. And so she prepared us. And it was three of us, three best friends, me and my two best friends, all Latinas. And she was like, if you want to get into this school, I will prepare you. And she prepared us to Mm. the T. She lived across the street from the actual school, one. But two, she knew how to prepare us. She prepared us like nobody's business. All three of us got in. Nice. Yeah. All three of us got in. And I also think we were kids of color, right? Like we weren't Mm -hmm. white kids. And we, you know, I remember again, when I look back, I go, wow, Miss Dorian knew what she was doing. Because she would be like, you better know they're going to ask you this. They're going to ask you this. They're going to ask you this. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. And you better, you better, you better, you better know. And I remember being in the audition process, it was lengthy and it was like you had the first audition and then if they liked you, then you would get a call back. And it was intense. And I remember walking in and it was like, I didn't really see a lot of kids that looked like me. And I just remember feeling intimidated and like, oh my God. 
But when I tell you, everything she said to us happened. And then I remember seeing the response. Like, oh, this kid knows what she's doing. Oh, this kid knows who the playwright is. Oh, this kid read the entire play. Oh, this kid knows stage left and stage right. You're not supposed to know coming from where I come from. And she didn't say a word. She mm-hmm. didn't say a word about it. It wasn't like she was like, I'm going to prepare you know, this Puerto Rican kid for this environment. No, it was more like, Why? I'm going to teach you how everybody else is doing it in the field. And we were ninth graders going in knowing exactly how to work it, the vocabulary, the environment. You know, she was my first training. She got all three of us in. We all got in. Oh, man, that's a great story. You're probably about 14 or so at that point. Yeah. What was the experience of being at that school? I didn't really fit in. It was overwhelming. The building was huge. You'd go to the bathroom and get lost because it was like 50 (laughs) escalators going up and going down. Economically, I came from, you know, I came from the hood. And there were a lot of students that were like, you know, where are you going to, you know, on break? And they'd be like, I'm going to the Hamptons. And I'd be like, I'm going to the Bronx. You know what I mean? Like, that was my trip. Like, the Silver Horse up to the Bronx. I didn't have the words for it, but it was what I was like, oh, they're kids that are economically on a higher status than me. There was a lot of white kids, right? I had never been around a lot of white. Listen, this was the first time that I met a kid that was half Puerto Rican, half white. You know, so it was like a big culture shock as well. Also, academically, the arts was what saved me. Academically, I had I had all kinds of stuff going on as a kid. I think my spirit knew like the arts was a way for me to navigate. I was bullied a lot in elementary and junior high. So by the time I got to high school, I think I had a lot of heaviness in me. I remember just being in drama class and people knew like what Stanislavski was. And I was like, I don't know who the hell... Or like um, Uta Hagen. Everybody seems so much more inept. And I just knew like, just be real. You know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. but then I had like Mr. Capaletti. He was a great teacher. He was no nonsense. I'm a great student in that way. If it's something that I really like, I'm a great student. I'm still like that. If you're teaching something that I gravitate towards, I ace it. You know, I met some lifelong friendships I still have, but it was a struggle for me. Where did stand-up come in? My mom. So one day my mom was sitting in the living room and she said to me, come over here, sit down. And I sat next to her and she opened the newspaper. And she said, there's a man, he's giving stand-up comedy classes. If you're interested, I will pay for it because I think you're very funny. Mm. And I was like, yeah, she said, you're very funny. And I think that was because every Sunday... My aunt would drive my uncle to Presbyterian Hospital because he used to work and they both did. Mm -hmm. And on Sundays, he would work. So she would drop him off and she would come with like cheesecake or some kind of food because we're a food family too, right? Like um, she would bring some kind of dessert. My mom would cook this big meal and my uncle Carlos would come. We would just talk all this crap in the kitchen. Yeah. And my uncle Carlos was very, very, he could have been a fantastic comedian because he was a great storyteller and then he was very funny. And then I'd come in and I'd tell stories and we would all just talk a lot of, you know, crap or not crap, but we were just very I know. funny. <laughs> just shoot the shit. You know? Yes, shoot the shit. And, and when you've got a room full of people who can do that, 
that's what you live for. Yes, because you're trying to outdo, you know, the jokester. Everybody's trying to tell a story and it's telling a story. And I believe that that was my first training ground. That was where I learned how to like bomb, or I learned how to like wait, or I, then I learned how to like get my you story in. You didn't need in. to go to open mics after yeah, that, right? It was like, yeah, it was. The thing is, is that then you're learning how to, you're learning your style, you're learning your timing, you're learning what kind of things you like to talk about. Yeah, it was great. And I think that's when my mom was like, this kid is funny. Like, she's always got something funny. And I think I also had a lot of adversity. So because I had a lot of adversity, I had to find a way to turn what was hard into something funny. And that was really also what got me like seeing things in a different way. So you took that class, right? I did. Who taught it? Uh, Oh, my God. Steven. I don't remember his last name. He was another pivotal person in my life. So I had this high school life, right, that was like everybody's going to school and everybody's doing like the high school thing. And then I had this double life, like I had a double life because it was the high school thing and every everything was like neat and proper. And then when I started taking the comedy class, that's when I started the nightlife. So it was like if I wanted to do stand up, I would go to the open mics in the village. And I was this 16-year-old kid going on the, the subway and I would go wherever I could. Um, where was the village gate? I won my first contest there. So it was that. And then another day my mom was like, because I was also a depressed kid. And my mom said, you know, there's this Puerto Rican traveling theater. They're offering free classes. Do you want to do that? And I was like, okay. So I joined that as well. And that was when I, the performer in me was born because <laughs> I felt comfortable. I was with, like my people. I felt more relaxed. I, that was where I found my confidence. Mm-hmm. I felt like I belonged. So by the time I graduated high school, I was already like born because I had had this other life that was nurturing me in a way that high school was not. Yeah, I imagine some of that would be too. Like, yeah, I'm in, in these classes here, but when I'm not here, I'm actually out in the places where stuff is being done. Yes. Yes. And so then that was when it was like, oh, my God, who's this comedian in this park in the circle? It was Charlie Barnett. He would people would just be sitting, just talk, you know, like enjoying the park. And then this man would come in and he'd go go get in the circle. He -hmm. was magical. Charlie Barnett for a time was the king of the kings. He was. I knew him, but he didn't know me. So, you know, remember, I was I was a kid. He would come in the circle, mm-hmm. and you could be talking over here, and then all of a sudden he he'd start with him in his white shoes. He had white shoes, and then his pants were a little bit higher than the. Sometimes he'd have like this little leather jacket. He was he was little, mm-hmm. and he'd be like, okay, because there would be like magicians. There'd be like all kinds of street performers, right? Yeah, yeah. And he would start, and by the time like within like five minutes, the whole park would surround that circle. Mm-hmm. And he'd tell jokes. And that was the first time I'd seen somebody turn it around because I hadn't discovered Richard Pryor yet. I remember watching him and going, oh, my God, Eric, you're taking me back. I remember <laughs> watching him going, oh, he's making white people laugh about some serious shit about themselves. Yeah. Nobody was fighting. He was talking about real stuff. And he would talk about Puerto Ricans and he would talk about black people. He would talk about, And everybody just like 
joined in mm-hmm. and then he'd leave like with a pocket load of money because people would just like bam, bam, bam. And yeah. that was my first live comedian ever that I was like, and then I'd go sometimes to like an open mic and I'd see him and I'd be like, oh my God, he's in here. Like Charlie Brown in his hair. I can't get up there because he's a fucking amazing. And he'd get up there, pop, 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 and then cut out. It's amazing because I think about this a lot, right? That's the thing also that you have, Eric. So you create space, but then you're also, you um, are a fan of people's art. And you can say, you can really see an artist and go, oh, that person has that thing. Or this person has this thing. And you're also very encouraging. And that's the thing that I think also helps to foster artists. Because you can't do it in a vacuum, you know, you got to be able to say, okay, I got something. But you also need people to nurture you along the way. I think that's also part of your contribution. Thank you. Which is very important. There are people like Charlie Barnett is almost like a, he's like this this um, legend. and some He's a legend to me. But there are only a few people that knew. For New Yorkers of a certain age... It's almost like Woodstock. There's that legend now, and yes. people are like, I was there, I was there, yeah, you yeah. weren't there. No, 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 you But those of us yeah. who were there, we, we know what we were yes. watching. Yes, 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 yes. And that's special because- I, And I, I missed that scene in Washington Square right? Park. You know, uh, I mean, stuff still goes down there, but it's not the same. It's you not know? the same. E- ever since it stopped being 24-7. Yes, yeah, and it taught you how to be humble and to revere. Because <laughs> I think we're also in a field where it's like the people that are like known, known are the ones that everybody's like, oh my God. And I'm like, I know comedians from the 80s that were like brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Even today when people talk about comedians, I'm like, yeah, but there are some comedians like Tony Woods and like Greer Barnes and like brilliant so many comedians that I was a fan of, but I also was a student of. Charlie Barnett was my number one. He could work a crowd. He could bring people together. He could tell the truth without people like wanting to punch you in the face. <laughs> he was skillful. He had a story. I don't, I don't know fully what his story was, but he had presence. Again, like one of those people that I could say shifted my artistry in a great way. So you're doing, you you make your way through high school. What are you thinking when you come out of there? Are you thinking stand-up trajectory? or Yeah, I was, I was doing stand-up for a while. I, I'd done it like for seven years or so. And then I stopped. And, and did you make your inroads uh, into the clubs as well? No, I did a lot of like bars. I did. Before the bar show with an industry, but they, they yeah, existed. There was no you just needed back to know then. them. Yeah, there was no like bring 10 people. There wasn't that. Mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. wasn't, it was more like, I know you come through. Greer Barnes was, was one of the first people that saw me. He was like, You got something, kid. And he <laughs> was also somebody that would be like, Come do my show. He was wonderful. And I remember when I saw him, I was like, Oh my God, he does all this. He has great storyteller, but then he also knew how to like do impersonations and then use sound. And like, I remember when I first saw him, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then I like, I don't really know what happened. I stopped because I wanted to be an actor. Like, I wanted mm-hmm. to do like the acting thing. I think I felt maybe it was getting too hard. Like, I didn't, I didn't know how to. 
I, I don't know. To be honest, I really don't know. I think it kind of just like it faded out for me. Remember, I originally wanted to be an actor. That was the original thing, like I was going to be an actor. And then I found like I had this funny bone. Mm -hmm. And then my mom was like, go do stand up. And then I did it for a couple of years. And then I was like, oh, I remembered I wanted to be an actor. And so I think that then started to become bigger mm -hmm. with me. And maybe I didn't know how to make how to make the transition. I don't know. Like, I think I've been a lover of both of them. So then mm -hmm. I started doing like the acting thing and I started right. studying. And when I graduated high school, I was done with high school. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be an actor. You know, I'm going to uh -huh. be an actor. Then that was like, I found I needed more training. Because mm -hmm. again, I'm Puerto Rican, female, and there wasn't really that much for me. And then I also realized like you, you have to be smart. Like you have to be a smart actor or a smart, whatever I'm going to do in my field, I have to be smart because mm -hmm. then there was more awareness around me being like, well, white folks are looking at me a certain way. I better have bigger words. I better know what I'm doing. I better be better. I better have skills and tools and blah, 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 blah. So that awareness started to come in more. Like so around, how do you deal with that? You go study. And that's when I came to City College. You didn't go straight in from high school, right? No, because I hated school. I was done. <laughs> I think maybe I lasted like two, three years mm -hmm. out in the streets. I think I did college first, and then I did um, New York and Rule. Like I went like my and my New whole Eureka life has Rule been with the uh, Angela Lozada. Yeah, I think that came group, after right? City College, but City College was amazing. That was when I met Cola. And, and for, and for the record, I am also, I can't uh, quite say alumnus of, of City College. Let's just say a, a former seven-year-long student of City College. Me too, Eric. Me too. I didn't I didn't. There's a lot of City College people, especially in the acting, in the theater department, that have similar stories. Yeah, like, I, you know, again, cricket We, we cricket learned life. our stuff. We just didn't all get the degrees. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, by the way, that's something I, I would love to to do like complete but yeah like when I got to City College I was like I need I need I'd studied two years of Meisner mm -hmm. before I got to City College like I was in the streets and then something was like oh I need more like I need more training and um was that something that you were being told or implied to you by others or that that's just something from yourself I think it was both because I think I've always had this like internal guide system like I want to be I want to be more right I want to learn more I think I also wanted a degree something kind of just came together where I was like I needed like a paper to be like you need some more leg legitimacy what did you find field. at City? Oh, City was magical I did not get my, my degree that's mm -hmm. not good because I've applied to many places and the degree seems to be is, is one of my what is it like social justice things around you know you don't necessarily have to have a degree in order to be brilliant right and people say like where did you get your degree I go in the streets right like I literally college in the everything. streets yeah. yeah so when I got to city college I did like two and a half years but that was a time where we were putting up plays like we would take class mm -hmm. and then people would write plays. We would cast each other. We would do a production. Or David Willinger would put up a play. We would Legendary do a play. Legendary David Willinger. <laughs> give it up for David Willinger. But yeah. it was very active. It was a time when 
I was able to, like, I studied Meisner for two years, and then I was able to apply it to plays and actually work the craft. So that was a time for me when I was working my acting chop skills, craft, whatever. Like, oh, this is how you use text. This is how you listen. This is how you create more characters. That was a time... I met so many, like Aixa and Yurdis. I knew her from high school. She was one of my takeaways from The oh, Guardia. Yes. I remember her. Ian so, Eaton. Do you know Ian? Oh, I love it. He's a great actor and a great person. Yes. So he's still in my life. And he and I did a great two-handler one time. Like, it was a time where there was a lot of creativity. And people were applying it, not just studying, but like... Rada Blank was also part of that. Kamali. Like there were, God rest her soul. There were all these artists that were doing it and not just studying. So when do you start taking this and taking it out into the world? Um, I remember trying to get representation. That was a little bit hard. I think like, what what is that saying? You make lemonade out of lemons. Like that, that was always kind of my... I think my story. So it still is. It's still I, I relate. Is. Yes. I think it's overrated to be quite honest. Like when you learn in the streets, it is it's just different. It's a different I think I joined the troupe after because I didn't finish school. And then that was when I really started to hone in my improv skills and my storytelling. So that's when you're uh, working with New York and Rule, right? Yes. How did you first get hooked up with them? I'd done, okay, so when in LaGuardia High School, I was friends with Selena's Leva, who went on to have an, an amazing career. She called me one time and she was like, we're doing a play in the Lower East Side. We were doing a Miguel Pinero play. I played a junkie. Of it's course, one of it's my a favorite. Pinero play. Yes. It was one of my, it's one of today, it's one of my favorite. <laughs> I played like a, a heroin addict. I think I had like two words or something. And then in the play, there was another actor by the name of Danny Gonzalez. And mm. Danny Gonzalez was part of this troupe. They were both part of this troupe. And they asked me to come in and audition. I prepared like this, again, like this funny monologue about this woman in this big soap and lipstick or some, some shit like that. <laughs> and Angelo Lozada asked me to be part of the, the troupe. That was it. Like, and then the troupe would create sketch comedy, you know, like sketches. And then he would put like in the, in between each sketch, because Angelo was a comedian, he would bring in other comics, which was like, it was sort of like a continuation from like the Charlie Barnett days. Like when I was doing stand up, there were all these comedians, um, Darnell Rollins, there was mm, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stapleton, there was Tony Woods, there was Greer, these really potent comedians that were really about the craft of comedy. And then you would also have poets come in. You would have Caridad de la Luz. That's right. I forgot that was a part of the mix there. Yeah. And you would have Flaco and you would have like, and then like, and then he was also great with like, you know, you sing, you know, you got, you can sing. So come through, (laughs) like, I'll give you a spot. And so again, there was that like nurturing thing. And I remember literally thinking that's a generous artist. That's not something you see all the time. I'm funny. You could be funny too. 
I'm an actor. You could be an actor too. Like we could both shine and we could both like, so that I will always be. And there were people coming to those shows. I mean, they had a a, a, a regular engagement at the Copa for a while, yep. I remember. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's where I saw you a couple that's of a times. That's a good memory, Eric. Well, that was almost the only time I was ever at the Copa. I was like, oh, I was always curious what it was like mm-hmm. inside. And I did wind up being involved in a couple of projects there over time. But mm-hmm. that was like, and I did not know you as well at that point, but I was like, well, I know someone who's performing at the Copa. I didn't know really what that meant, except okay. I knew what the Copa was. Yeah, that was when I was introduced to the Copa too, because I didn't really know. I think we did that a couple of times, if, mm. if I recall, but that was my Yale MFA. You know what I mean? Like, if I were going to say, like, you know, where did you get your degree? That's one of my degrees. Because I tell young people now, they're like, they're like, so, you know, I tell them, oh, it's, it's one of my sticking points. Because, you know, in this business, if you go to Yale, that goes a long way, right? But I got my schooling on my feet. Puerto yeah. Rican traveling theater, my stand-up, the troupe, times that I put up solo shows, like in a closet or in a bar or whatever. Like, that was literally my training. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, I go, wow, you know, everything I know is, is because I like I fell on my face and I got back up. Now, you're starting to do character pieces with New York and Rule, right? Yes. At what point did the solo shows start to come in? Because I've seen a number of them and they are among the, the favorite things that I've ever seen in, in the theater. Where uh, did we, how did we meet though? Like what, how did that, we, we met in through Cola. Cola, but then how did we come? We had a number of mutual friends from City College. Yeah. So I would hear what everybody was doing. I knew half the cast of the, the legendary, the continuing adventures of Dick Danger which yes, featured remember. like a half dozen, yeah. featured like a half dozen former city college students uh, yes. that, that I had worked with, and you had worked with probably at yeah. some point. You kept showing up in my news feeds, and eventually, you know, just supporting each other. Mm-hmm. You probably came to support a couple of very early no-name shows, uh-huh. and uh, uh-huh. returning the favor, and you know, all of that. I mean, just probably you did a solo show that I didn't have to pay in to, to get mm-hmm, in to mm-hmm, see, and then mm-hmm. I subsequently paid for future shows. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't remember specifically. Yes, yes, yes. I, I know it that I got a chance to see gradual. your work, and it knocked yeah. me out. And when we wound up with the circumstance of starting to play with the variety show, mm-hmm. I was thinking, like, who's doing really good work that mm-hmm. should be seen you know, and who's out there trying to get stage time. And you were one of the people I reached out to mm-hmm. based on having mm-hmm, seen mm-hmm. some of that work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Eric. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah. What I'm trying to get at is, is, is when did the idea to come to mount a solo show and how'd that come about? Because that was, that was a thing that was kind of in fashion for a few minutes there. It was, everybody, yeah. You know, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. largely, and she didn't start it, but she was the first the first person to really get big attention for it whoopi goldberg obviously and, yes. you know she again hardly the only person doing it but the first person who got something like that on broadway yeah. and that kind of attention yeah, yeah yeah because i think and i remember hazel goodman uh had yes. an hbo special yes. yes 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 but that time was like magical because people were just finding their voice and mm-hmm. how they did their thing like how do I express myself? And there was space to do that, to fall on your face, 
Angelo would go, what do you got? What do you got? What do you got this month? And I'd be like, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll take a spot. I'll take a spot. And then the day of the show, I'd be like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And something would strike me in my head. And I'd be like, all right, let's go with it. I would take the spot <laughs> and I would improvise something and something would come through and there would be a character. One of the early shows <laughs> that you did with us, Common Basis, uh-huh. I remember this vividly. One of the things about doing the shows there is that there was a resident theater company. Every week we would come in and whatever play they were doing at the time was the backdrop. I used to love the way some performers would just on the fly, you know, make use of the set. And I remember vividly one time you told me the play that was in residence at that time, the entire thing took place in ladies' room. Uh, Ah. And they actually set up a thing that they had a sink with running water. They had toilet stalls with actual toilets with graffiti written in there. I mean, like, but I remember... You did this monologue that seemed both fully formed and improvised at the same time. I remember after the show, you told me that you had an idea for something that you wanted to do. You weren't quite sure how you were going to convey the ideas that you had or get the character talking. And you showed up that night. We've got the ladies room. And you told me that you found that character. Millie. Yes, oh and you told God, me Eric. you told me that you had found the character because oh. when you saw that, like this is what it is. She's in the, the ladies' room, and like the bulk of the action took place oh my fixing your face in front yes. of the mirror. Wow! 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 Oh my God! Okay, so and it was so it made me so happy when I later on saw yes a polished version of that in one of your shows, in a couple of the shows maybe. Eric, um, ah. Uh, Okay, no words, no words to describe this. What do do I want to say here? It's nice that you remember that because that character... So when I started doing stand-up and I was taking those classes, I went and write stuff down. And I remember Steven, he was the one that told me one time, we we were having a session, like a writing session, and I didn't have anything written. I felt so bad because I was like, oh, my God. Like It was like reminiscent of school. What I would do is I would go on stage and I would just talk. And that was the way that I did stand up. But it was in my head. And I had an ability to retain it. And then if I went back up, I could edit it. I knew like, okay, this word worked. This word didn't. This was the timing, blah, blah, blah. And he was the one that said to me, Marilyn, because I, I think I had like shame around it. And I was like, ah, I can't write it down. Because again, that's the system. If I didn't have it written, it wasn't legitimate. I just couldn't do it. I still have this thing. And he was the first person that said, Marilyn, you are an oral writer. And I was like, an oral writer? He said, yeah, you're a writer. He said, don't discredit yourself. You're just an oral writer. Again, the light bulb went off and I was like, oh, I am a writer. I just don't write the way everybody else does. Can, can I say something? We, we, we recently had a, a, a wonderful conversation with comedian Leanne Lord. You know yes, Leanne. and that's how I met her at No Name. And I knew her from way in the beginning when she would come with her father, remember? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. When we talked with her, Leanne is one of these very meticulous, detailed mm-hmm. writers And we talked about her process. But one thing that I loved was that she 
made very plain that this was just sharing her way mm-hmm. of writing. There is no right way of writing. You do whatever yep. works for you and you find out what works for you. And I thought that was a very wonderful attitude coming from someone who works that way. Because a lot of Mm -hmm. times people who are that meticulous about their craft kind of take the attitude of this is the way to Uh do it, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, she spoke very eloquently about that. Well, she's a very smart girl. Like I could totally get her saying that because Mm -hmm. she also respects the craft. She also respects artists. She also is brilliant at what she does, the way she does it. And I think that's part of her stand-up is like her words are very meticulous. And that's where set up, punchline, boom, she has a certain style. I'm the complete opposite. You know, like I was a kid, and this is crystallizing itself right now as we speak. So thank you, Eric. Like I was a kid. My academics went down because I was being bullied. I had a lot to deal with. So academically, I didn't really fully flourish. So I think probably my brain went another way. When he told me, you're an oral writer, oh, man, because I work with young people that are institutionalized, you know, in Rikers, in Juvie, and I teach writing. And then, you know, they're like, yo, Mish, I can't, you know. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm you. You know, I have trouble writing on paper. You probably an oral writer. It's mm. not that you don't write, because we all talk a lot of shit all the time. We're always all writing, but some people can go to the page. Some people can record themselves. Some people could just talk. Blah, 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 blah. You know, how many people, like in my family, they're, they're all storytellers. But you can't discredit yourself because that's a problem in the system because then you get X'd out. And the people that are getting X'd out are the most brilliant people. So when he told me you're an oral writer, I ran with that because I was like, oh my God, it's not that I'm not capable. It's just I work a certain way. We are given the idea of what a writer is. Yes. And if you are not doing it in the way you've been told, you don't even give yourself the validation that actually, no, I am writing. I'm just doing it in a way that my brain wraps its way around that. Yes. Although... That causes a problem later on. Um, well, <laughs> it does because yeah. then how do you record your work? So when I was in the troupe, I started to discover even further that like I would just download work. So mm-hmm. I would write before an audience, like just give me the spot and I'd have stuff floating in my head. Every character that I created was on the spot. That character, it was great because... The toilet was there. I used the set to help me write that piece in the moment. And that was Millie. She was in a bathroom with her girlfriend who was in a bathroom stall. She was just discovering that her friend just was diagnosed with HIV. And that was a whole story. That character, I still work that character. (laughs) And that was where I discovered that's when she came through in that moment at that show with you. I knew this was a part of your process. I did not know this was more specifically your process. Mm -hmm. I know at least a few of your solo projects have been directed by the wonderful Dudley Finley Jr., one of the best directors I ever worked with. I'm wondering how, when you're assembling a show of several of these set pieces, Mm -hmm. and you're not working with a traditional script... Mm -hmm. 
how do you get the beat mm-hmm. to remain and, you know, timing and things of that nature to remain as consistent as one needs to be during a run of a show? Um, eventually, so just, just for the record, all of that work that I did is on paper now. Oh, okay. But when I was working it, I could do like, you know, 50 shows and it, I, I was just working through memory and editing and writing in my head. That was an ability... It's kind of still an ability that I still have. What happened was, like, if somebody if somebody was to hear me and they go, I want you to come to my school and perform, or I want you to come to my venue, that was when I was like, oh, shit, I don't have a script, right? And then I go and try to write it, and I'm like, no, it's not the same effect. Like, there's just something, just something, that's just the way it works. And Dudley, God bless him, doesn't panic, you got to not be able to pat like if so this is what I would do I would say Dully this is the this is the first line of my show this is the last line of my show and everything in between is what I'm going to do Just going right back to acting class yes. city college first line last line Yes still to this day it's like that mm-hmm. and then um he'd say we pick out the music okay we're going to open with this if it's monologue, then it'd be like, this is a song that's opening, this is a song that's closing, this is a song that's opening, right? Uh, this is the kind of lighting. This is, we just had, he directed Rumble in the Theater. It's one of my latest, right? It's the same thing. It was like, we got a working script, but she may change the, the opening the day of, like a half an hour before the show. Can you roll with that? Some people can Gotta be have like, the right tech crew working those. And then a lot of people, they're like, I, I can't because I need, I work this way. And so then it's a matter of finding the people that don't panic yeah. and also that don't want and need perfection because that's not what my show's about. My shows right. are about um, in the moment, I'm going to bring something, but this audience is going to bring another vibe. And for example, Rumble in the Theater. The opening of that play, I came up with it like 15 minutes before, <laughs> you know, I presented it for the first time and then uh-huh. it stuck. Like, oh, we're just going to go with it because part of the fun of it is we're just going to see what wants to happen in the moment. I don't know. It's a, it's a little freaky. But um, so he has the ability, Eric, to like um, not go, no, it has to be this way. And you have to, you know, do it this way. And, you know, the blah, blah, blah. And like, no, he, he takes the artist and he goes, what do you need? <laughs> Just let's do the beginning. Because I need to play and I need to discover what this show wants to be. And, and then he's like, he's a rock because yeah, yeah, he yeah. doesn't panic. Well, and- he also has a skill set of being very much able to adapt to the skills of the performers he's working with. So he may have in his own mind how he would do it, but he understands that, you know... Can you relate to that? Yeah. Yes. At the end of the day, he has a real good sense of how to bring out the best of the performer, and part of that is recognizing that performer's process. Yes. And you do that too, don't you? Yeah, I mean that, yeah. That's the, but again, that see, this is a through line. Again, that's so essential because you're seeing something in somebody and then you go, okay, I'm gonna just give you a spot to just run with whatever. There are people, producers, you know, directors or people that have venues and they're like, it has to be this way. 
I can't get into those venues because they don't trust my process. That's deep because I am not that artist. And, and so because I'm not that artist and I haven't been, in some ways I've been kept out of things that can move me forward. But you also have to trust that what I'm going to deliver is going to be cool if you just sort of hear the artist that I am. My friend Godfrey, who's Heartbeat Ensemble, he allowed me to do Rumble. And I had like a script that was like, it was like an outline, like, okay, there's this character, there's some of this, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, I just need to play and I need to, and he gave me the space. It was wonderful because I could flush things out and I could work the way I work. That's not the general system. As you started to do more solo piece shows, mm-hmm. somewhere along the line, you, you're getting roles in movies, you're you're so, getting roles in plays. Mm-hmm. Did you have a roadmap in mind or was it, you know, talk about, if you would, the other work that you've done along mm-hmm. the way and, and balancing your work with the folks at Rikers? And, mm-hmm. and So at some point I did get representation. And some points in my career, I've I've been fortunate enough to do some film, some TV, and plays. Some of it I've enjoyed, some of it not so much. Um, I think there's a, a misconception about like, um, you know, you did that film, and oh my god, and it's like, yeah, but I didn't have that much fun on it. Like, like, like the people I have in mind one particular project which I won't name, but I think I know one you're talking about. Which, well, no. Well, all right. You know what? I will bring this up because this actually, uh, in a different context, came up with uh, a guest we just spoke with. Uh, Bob Greenberg with an actor in the film Made in Manhattan. Oh, yes, Bob. Bob. That was a fun. Yes, I do. I always bust his chops when I'm when I'm introducing him at one of our shows. I always introduce him as as the uh, the only performer I've ever introduced who uh, was proposed to on live national TV by Jim Carrey and was also naked in a Jennifer Lopez film. Yay, uh, I just love love the <laughs> the offset of you that. You know, Bob is another one um, who's managed to me, who's managed to take his artistry and Mm. create something very specific to him because he never stops and he's always, he's just, he's Bob. Yeah. Um, And I haven't (laughs) seen him in years and years, but again, I'm a fan. No, that film actually was lovely to make. It taught me a lot. Mm. It was interesting because I played a maid and that wasn't after the fact. I realized like, oh, people ain't, you know, some people in my community are like, she's playing a maid, I'm supposed to play a maid. You know, that's something else you have in, in, in oh, common with man. Leanne Lord. Really? Yeah, Leanne Lord, uh, <laughs> it didn't make the final cut of her episode, uh, and she's probably just as happy with that. But I, I always bring up the fact that, like, almost nobody knows about this. She was in a, a George Lucas-produced film called Radioland Murders. Uh, she worked with a slew of legendary comic performers in that film, Bobcat mm-hmm. Goldthwait, Robert Klein, Harvey Corman, mm. Christopher Lloyd, and she played a maid in that. Oh. Um and, and you know, when we talked about it, she said now in you know, in retrospect, I, I I realized I was playing the magic Negro part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before that was coined, I think that became in vogue after Shawshank. Mm-hmm. 
uh, redemption. Mm. Not that it didn't exist before mm-hmm. then, but I, that's what I first mm-hmm. started hearing it referred to that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't regret doing Made in Manhattan, and that's a whole other podcast session because I have a <laughs> lot of thoughts about. Indeed, indeed. But no, uh, that was a that was a, a a fun. It taught me a lot. It helped me out later on in life, just personally. I have nothing bad to say about that set. Oh, nice. It was cool. And then there's some stuff that you go and it's like, you don't feel any, like, you're just showing up and saying lines and getting a paycheck. I'm a very personable person. So my first love is theater. If I can make money doing theater the way I would make it, like, let's say on a film set or like, you know, you want to make a living. My preferred thing is theater and then secondary I would say like if I'm doing a part and I have done some parts on TV that are fulfilling you know I think each job brings you something different and then I think each job informs you about where you want to go next what you want to keep doing what's your stilo what is it that you really really you know came in to do as an artist as a soul um each thing teaches you something. So, like, I have my teaching life. I do that to, to. And how did that start? That started because somebody invited me to be a guest artist in a in a class that my friend was teaching. I think Candido Tirado was the first person that brought me in as a guest artist. He was teaching students how to write a play, and then you bring in guest artists to read the students' plays, and that's how it just went. You know, one one person helps the next, hopefully. <laughs> I went from guest artist to teaching artist. To sometimes I'm a guest artist, sometimes I'm a teaching artist. Um, a lot of my teaching has been with young people. I hate the term at risk, so I say that just because I don't have another term right now, because I was that kid. They are me, I am them. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy helping young people have a voice. Because that was what saved me. You know, Mm. when I look back, I go, oh, my God. The arts literally did save me. So I believe in it. And if I can push that forward, it it also keeps me centered. Like, you know, it's a crapshoot. Because sometimes you're not working. Sometimes, you know, that's why you create your own work. And then when you create your own work, it's harder to do other people's work. Because... (laughs) I get that, yeah. You're not really doing the, the, the thing that you do. I could do a part... That you go, oh, that's that's all she could do. And you would never know that I do all this other work. The way the business works, you know, especially if you get more than one role or one more than one showcase that is in a similar vein, then it's like, oh, that's what that person does. That's their box. Yes. You know, yeah. and it's harder to break out, whereas if you're controlling the content. Yes, then yes. you can at least give yourself a little bit more range whether or not people accept that as their vision of you. Yes, yes. That's why I don't judge artists because you don't know what's happening in an artist's life. You don't know what they have to do to pay the bills. Artists are are unique beings in the world. We have to be compassionate with each other because you just, you don't know. Sometimes, you know, I've seen people flying high and they're like, oh my God, I'm amazing. Ah," You know, and then Mm -hmm. the next minute, like something crashes and it's like, that's, you know, we're in a business that is brutal at times, (laughs) a lot of times. So I revere the artists and then I also am very compassionate towards 
what roles or projects have you enjoyed the most or learned the most from? Um, I enjoy doing my own work, to be honest. That felt so scary to say. I don't know why. But I do. I enjoy, I enjoy telling stories about people that don't get hurt. I enjoy talking about the things that matter to me. I enjoy connecting with audiences. I really do. I enjoy learning about audiences because that also informs my work. I respect, like if you, if it's one person, that's the thing. Like when I was doing stand-up, you know, sometimes you would be doing stand-up for five people. Sometimes we, we right, we would do no name and be like two people in the audience. <laughs> and it's like, but, but can you make those two people laugh? Or can you make those two people like shift their perspective? You know, sometimes we'd have 20 people. What kind of artist are you with each audience, right? Because that's also part of the training. And you have to respect the audience. Like the they they got up and they were like, we're going to go see a thing that Marilyn Torres is going to go do. Then I respect that. Like they don't have to come. They don't have to care. So I enjoy that that exchange immensely. And I love telling stories and I love talking about the things that, that scare us. And I love the possibility of moving the needle around something that we get stuck around as a society, right? Because we could stay stuck and be like, well, it's this, is this, is this. And my thing now is like, but what else is there that we haven't discovered that mm. maybe, maybe we could be a little bit better to each other? Maybe, because mm. I also studied... Um, I don't know if you know this, Erica. I became a core energetics practitioner along the way. I, I'm 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 not going to try and re repeat that back, but I will say I knew that you had ventured into some stuff in that realm that I'm not going to try and repeat. Yes, but uh, but I didn't know any specifics about that. Uh, yeah, what's so, that about? Some stuff happened to me in my life. I started doing core energetics, which is body therapy in essence. I saw that that was helping me, and then I went to study and became a core energetics practitioner. For four years, I studied, and then after that, I started applying it in my artistic work. So everything changed for me artistically mm. because then my artistry became about, it was about healing, I think, before, you know, and like jokes and all that and story, but now it's more like, oh shit, there's some stuff I could do with my art. And I could teach people or show people or just share some stuff that I learned. That's also part of the artistry now, too. It's been like all these kind of different avenues that I think now has culminated. My first love is live. Going forward, mm -hmm. do you have anything in your sights that you're working towards? Or is there something going on with you right now that we, we can keep an eye out for? Or what's going on with you now? After I graduated from my healership, I created a show called Anatomy of Love a couple of years ago. It's a group process. And I've done it, and I'm going to be doing it again. So that's one thing that I'm actually looking for space to do it now. So I've got like a couple of pieces that I'm working on getting documented and out there. Because I think I've accumulated some material, right? That I think may have some kind of secondary life or... But my anatomy of love is the focus that I have right now. 
we will be seeing that at some point soon, yeah, like I'm, this I'm, year. Yeah, yes. Where can people track you down? Where can they find out what's going on with you if they want to know about all things Maryland toys? Yeah, so Facebook is the most... Um, you know, it's this whole uh, social, I'm still catching up, right? <laughs> pow, pow, pow to me, because that seems to be the way. But um, And then there's also MarilynTorres.com. Oh, okay. So, so we're building website. a website now. And Facebook is is um, the most like active uh, way to get in touch with me, to see what's happening. Um Instagram, I'm, I'm working on that right now. Um, I'm I'm catching up to like this whole because Marilyn is also very old school. Like I'm very old school. Um, be, and I think it just speaks to I like person to person. You know, like I like I really as I get older, I I revere that more in myself because it's more like oh Marilyn, you're really a people person. You still got to do the the social media stuff, like I fall somewhere in between. I'm I'm certainly I don't love social media. I also don't despise it. There are pluses and minuses, mm-hmm. but if you really want people to know what's going on with you, uh, if you're putting any amount of work out there, it is more or less a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty much at peace with that. I just wanted to know that if something is coming up, you'll be putting the word out. We can see it from you that way or via your website, yes, right? I Yeah, definitely. And when I put something out, the next thing you're going to know <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a concerted Just give us enough effort. advance notice so we can spread the word via okay. old-fashioned phone calls or whatever, okay. whatever comes about. I want to be in that number. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for spending today. I could talk with you for hours. And however long this episode winds up being, trust me, people who are listening, this could have easily been about five times longer than that. Maybe not for you, but for us. Um, thank you for chatting with us, Marilyn. Thank it, you for well, having me. Thank you for ch- no. Let me let me make this personal, person to person. Thank you for chatting with me. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Same here. I love you, Eric. I love you too, Marilyn. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, man, I love that lady. I love talking with her. I can't wait to see her work again soon. Marilyn Torres, uh, it was great catching up with her. So these podcasts, they happen because lots of people do lots of things. And the people you need to know about who do those lots of things for us are producer and chief audio engineer, the one, the only, Gary Understudy Hardcastle. Additional audio provided by Miles Mix Appeal Blue Spoots. Our theme music is written and performed by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. And as we like to do, we we will leave you with a little bit of music. Today is actually a song from Miles Blue Spruce, who also has a band called Blue Spruce. But this isn't a Blue Spruce song. This is a Miles Blue Spruce song. He hadn't left the band. This is just something he did on his own. It's called Try Tonight. I love that song. I hope you will, too. Until next time, thank you for hanging out with us. Hope your summer is treating you kindly and the universe is treating you kindly. Until next time, I'm Eric Vetter. I love you all.
Another day, don't believe a word I say. 